This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. It's interesting doing like these deep dives, um, and I, I wonder sometimes if people understand like like how much uh, like time it takes when you're like really researching it like a particular um, killer, and uh, sometimes sometimes some of the stories we put out like I've really only done a couple of weeks worth of work on, and I've done some reading, and then some of them like I've spent months on Robert Long. That's that story is something that I had looked at like even before we got into Israel Keys, like he was a person that I was interested in. Um, I was a little shocked at how much disinformation was out there about him. And that's one of the main reasons he came up this season was kind of setting that record straight. I found the most interesting little MSN like headline article. And I wanted to use that as our true crime news. It actually came to me like through what's known as uh looper link that i follow it came out the 14th so i guess that would be sunday the 14th the title of it is dateline's keith morrison admits he struggles with the ethics of reporting on true crime <sighs> you know who keith morrison is right of course yeah Every, everybody who listens like to anything like dateline grandfather like, of true yeah. crime reporting yeah yeah like his voice is like true crimes morgan freeman i would say yeah so he struggles with the ethics of reporting on it. Yeah, yeah. So this is what the article says. And this comes from MSN.com. It's written by, the story is by a guy named Sam Moya. And I'll, I'll just like read a piece of it and you can tell me what you think of it. NBC's Dateline is a staple of the network, having been on the air now for 31 seasons. Although it's focused on true crime, Dateline in its earliest days was also a general news program which I, I remember that. Like I remember when Dateline was like more like 60 minutes. Today it reigns as one of the kings of true crime, even in a market that has arguably become oversaturated. I don't think there's any argument there. Between the many true crime podcasts and documentaries across most streaming services, Dateline has still managed to carve out a space for itself. Arguably, one of the most iconic parts of Dateline is correspondent Keith Morrison. Of all the correspondents, the New Yorker described Morrison as the most verbally gifted of them, all due to his poetic nature. The outlet added, he seems to revel in the form, and we in turn revel in him. His podcast series, including Killer Role, like he has multiple series, I guess that might be serieses, feel like a chance to float around in the warm bath of his voice. It's safe to say that to some, Morrison is synonymous with Dateline. But recently, Morrison revealed some of his reservations regarding the true crime genre. With the rise of true crime TV shows, movies, and podcasts, critics of the genre are quick to point out its inherent exploitation, taking individuals' trauma and turning it into entertainment for viewers. In an interview with the Los Angeles Times, Keith Morrison revealed that he understands the perspective and even struggles with it. I sort of had to be dragged into the murder business, he said. It just didn't seem right somehow. 
we were taking these intensely affecting, deeply personal incidents in people's lives and we're making entertainment from them. Morrison told the outlet that he does worry about the exploitative aspects of true crime. He recalled a time when he had to drive up to a widow's house just shortly after her husband's passing, recalling that he felt like the worst person in the world. Yet what he found surprised him. For she invited him in, she gave him food and drink, and she chatted with him for a while. Morrison told the LA Times that this was when he realized that the show had the power to allow ordinary people to tell their stories. Morrison also said that dealing with the subject matter every week could be exhausting, as could the travel, but in the end, it's all worth it. You get involved in the details, he explained, and you talk to the people involved, and you hear what the real issues are behind these stories. It's so interesting that you can't possibly stay away from it. Anyways, that's a little piece of, I I don't know if that counts as true crime news. I thought it was interesting hearing him say that he had reservations about all of this. Well, sure. And I mean, he was questioned pretty directly about it. And so it would probably not have been appropriate for him to say no. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But You know, there are aspects of, well, all of the different media that put out information about true crime cases. But you have to keep in mind, so just because something occupies its audience's attention, like as entertainment, you know, it doesn't have to be, it doesn't necessarily mean it's all like happy or positive, which is kind of a weird thing for me. Because you think of like being entertained and you think of things that make you happy and that you want to do in your free time. But entertainment is just occupying your attention, right? And so to an extent, you know, nobody's ever happy and it's not positive um, that these things happen. I do think that there are some elements of it that make, you know, it worthwhile just like Keith Morrison was saying because now it is it's so intriguing that it is oversaturated right there are a lot of people that get into true crime we're two of them right yeah. <laughs> um, but you know there I've seen recently very exploitative avenues and channels and things that have popped up and all I can say about that is like they're only doing it because there's an audience that's following it. So if people stop following it, even just to like talk about it negatively, it would probably go away. I'm, I'm just saying it's almost like the trolls, right? I, I don't, I mean, it's, I don't know what the exact core of true crime would be other than people's need for the salacious details of thing. Maybe. I don't know. That's what it is. Well, and it's, it's, it's almost like anything that has to do with a human experience is going to be almost unconditionally entertaining to humans, right? A lot of the true crime cases that are put out, uh, especially when you're talking about Dateline, that's mainstream media as far as I'm concerned, It's always something that, like, but for the audience member that's listening could have possibly experienced something very similar, right? That's what true crime is. And so it's, um, so it's, 
it is a matter of like people who have a natural intuitive interest in like putting together clues and looking at details and solving something. But it's also a way to kind of navigate the dark side of humanity in sort of a uh, indirect way. Right. Um, At least for me, I know I've said on the show before um, when I was younger, like teenage ish, and, you know, I was really, I watched America's Most Wanted and Unsolved Mysteries, just like everybody else on the planet, or at least in the United States. And so I used experiences that I saw, at least the narratives of them, as a little bit of a guide, right? Huh. And I think that uh, that spills over, like, you know, monumentally now, as far as, like, you can get it everywhere, and you can hear about it from everybody if you go down the avenues, right? Yeah. Um, and so it, it has gotten to the point where, so to exploit something, you have to be using it uh, to make money in a way that's inappropriate and inappropriate is always going to be subjective, right? You can't like put it down to, there's not really a hard, fast rule on that, but I know it when I see it. <sighs> Like, you know exploitation when you see it? I know when people are exploiting true crime when I see it. I've seen several, like, maybe uh, in disregard for victims' uh, situations, victims' family members' uh, feelings, or uh, you put out information that's blatantly false. It can be about the victims. It can be about the case. It can be... Um, anything and the point of it is there's a huge like interest in the case and you're differentiating yourself for the sole purpose of drawing attention to the you know exclusive information you're putting out that's not true at all right and it's amazing to me the herds of people that just take off and go along with it I think that that kind of thing is, it's blatantly exploitative, right? Um, now, Keith Morrison on Dateline, he gets paid a salary to, you know, be a journalist on Dateline. Uh, and to me, for the most part, I mean, I'm sure that, you know, somebody could argue with me about it, but I find him to be fairly credible, if not very credible, right? He's, And that's part of the point. Like, he sort of makes a point to not, you know, be reporting things that aren't true, right? And so that, uh, you know, that's definitely not exploiting it. It's getting the story out there. And it has an inherent audience just based on what it is, right? It's mainstream media in the United States. It airs once a week on television, right? Right. Um, It's going to have an audience, and so, you know, they, he could say a lot of things that a lot of people would just genuinely believe, right? Yeah. Um, but he doesn't. He, he says he tries to stick to the facts or at least his understanding of them. And so you end up with any sort of media that's out there. If you're just trying to get clicks and likes and followers and subscribers and whatever else there is to have, 
um, you have to di- differentiate yourself, right? And yeah. I see it happening with people that um, are going, hey, this is new information about this case that nobody else has. And like, it's just blatantly false. Like they're literally writing fiction. That's when it becomes really wrong, right? As far as like reporting on crime stories, I mean, it there's an audience for it. And I try to stay as close to the facts as possible. I like to break down facts and, you know, tell people about facts. <laughs> um, that can be really hard to do with some of these older cases. It can be. It, one of my favorite, so so Keith Morris is probably my second favorite Canadian. And I, I, I say that sort of jokingly, but uh, I always have to like remind myself that like he had a serious career as the, the um, I don't know if they call it, I guess the fill-in anchor um, substitute. I don't know what the word would be when, like, so when you have like five anchor, when you have five days a week that are always done by the same anchors, and you have the weekend anchors, but sometimes somebody will sort of fill in different chairs because, like, of those four people, sometimes they're out, and that's what Keith Morrison did in the early '90s in Canada. And I I know this because at one point there was a show on. PBS about his life and like everything. Um, it, it shocked me. He, he's one of those people who's been married like forever to their spouse. And I always love that. I think they were married since the seventies and he's actually, um, Matthew Perry stepdad, uh, friends, friends. Yeah. friends. yeah. From friends. Uh, he's his stepdad. And, um, I just, I have always found him, uh, to be, like you said, credible and interesting. And I'm glad we hear somebody like him talking about the exploitation of things. Now, with an older case like this, where we're trying to like dig through the facts, one of the problems that we ran into is mainstream media threads, you call them narratives, uh, about this particular guy. Well, I noticed two things. One is he doesn't really have a lot of mainstream media stuff that's like readily accessible on the internet. I mean, you can read about him, but you know, there, he, he pops up in a couple of shows here and there for the most part, like the stuff that uh, focuses on him is in what I consider to be a little more exploitative. And I don't know where they come from. Like I've noticed that like um, the old crime and investigation network and investigative or investigation discovery, they get a little exploitative for my fa- my um, tastes. But I think that's because they have to provide so much content to keep a channel going. Yeah, it's a little bit of a sellout. Yeah. And uh, with this particular guy that we're talking about, um, he's he, in my opinion, has a mostly complete story. It's not completely... Like there's like some possibilities there, but like because it happens in the spree form, because where we left off, we left off in 1984 and like what had uh, spurred us leaving off there was he had just sort of become a person who was like taking a rape kit and selecting his victims from newspaper ads. Uh, we, we sort of left off in, in March and April of 1984 uh, specifically, he had raped a woman who was selling her house down in uh, Newport, Ritchie, Florida. And then he had discovered like what I consider to be one of his big triggers. And you and I debate this back and forth. Some. The, the trigger was he had discovered his girlfriend was having an affair with another man. 
And he gets this job uh, the first week of May 1984 as a electrician for Gulf Bay Electric down in Tampa, Florida. And the very next day, he commits his first rape and murder. And this is a woman who was walking home like the night of May the 4th. She had recently quit her job as an exotic dancer. And Robert Long pulls up beside her and he offers her a ride. And she says, okay, I, you know, I need a ride. I'll, I'll go with this guy. He seems all right. And he looks pretty – have you looked at like his mugshots through the years? Yeah. He's I would normal looking. That's what I was going to say. Like, there, He's pretty unassuming, don't you think? I mean, yeah, if you, yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I looked at his most recent, uh, I pulled up his most recent mugshot. Uh, I think the mugshot I found is from, um, it had one date on it, but it was actually from another date. Uh, it was basically, it's from 2020 and it's record. It's, it warns you at the top, the, the, um, May 2019 is like his record is correct as of then, but all his convictions are so old. Like he was convicted in 1985 and he really, um, I think one of them spilled over into early or spring, summer 1986. But for the most part, like he was, his entire crime spree, his trial, his conviction took place in this really uh, short amount of time. And I'm popping a picture up for you to see here. Uh, if you guys go on, he's got one on his Wikipedia page where he looks pretty normal. But even to to today, like in his like jumpsuit picture that he has, it's like his current offender picture in NCIC. He looks totally like like a grandpa. He's got a neat little beard. He's got like a you know a decent head of hair, and he just looks like he would be like totally safe uh, to go on a ride with. Well, I wouldn't go on a ride with him, but. That's why right. I already know this. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, but if you were, you know, if, if it was uh, 1984 and it's just the average person walking home after, I don't know if she had like just quit her job. I right? don't think so. I think it was like the week prior. Okay. So she's just walking. And, you know, depending on how much you walked, it might actually be nice to have a ride. Right. Yeah. I don't, yeah. I don't think this was something like, uh, I think I, I don't think they had anything else going on. If I recall correctly, May fourth, nineteen eighty four, would be a Friday night. So my impression was, unless it's like the night of the third into the fourth, I think it's the night of the fourth into the fifth that this happens. And my impression was that she might have been out with some friends and walking home afterwards. This woman, she's nineteen years old, so she's she's a woman, but she's very young. Um, her her name is Winthy Long. Uh, she was, uh, some places report her as being 20 years old. Others report her as being 19 years old, but either way, she's very young. She was an Asian woman. Um, so, you know, I don't know that he has like a type racially or, or ethnicity wise. Um, I'm pretty sure everybody up to this point had been Caucasian women based on what I'm seeing in the profiles that, that have been done for us. Um, and this, you know, again, this comes from uh, radford.edu. It's like an old archive thing that I pulled out. Um, there are several interviews and websites involved in, in what we've done here. One of them that I, am, I no longer have access to, but I have a PDF of, is 
Robert Long serial murder case, and it's a study in cooperation. Um, and that's going to come up sort of towards the end. of That's going to come up either towards the end of this episode or it might come up um, in the next episode. So this woman gets a ride home with this pretty benign-looking guy who has discovered, you know, and I think he would have been 30. He's discovered that his girlfriend is having an affair. He's got a new job. Um, he's wrestling with some demons uh, in his serial rape. But the big thing that's that going to happen here is you and I know he killed someone at the end of March. Right. Uh, and it it took his, what, goal? I don't know how to put that. It took, like, what he was doing and because he was left unsatisfied after raping her and he found more fulfillment in the strangling, right? Yeah, it sort of escalated his level of violence. I think that's the best way to put it. He um, and, and he freely admits to this. It's been documented in a couple of those places I mentioned. He basically realized he could still get off on uh, the act as long as the act ended in taking total control over a person. And I don't know that you can have any more control over a person than if you kill them. And that is what did it for him. The strangulation is where he started, and it was the killing that actually did it. So what he does to Miss Long, no relation. Uh, they have the same last name, but no relation between the two of them. Uh, he, he drives her to a wooded area, and he tells her to take off her clothes. He ties her hands behind her back and then forces her to lie down on the seat of his car. Uh, he raped her, and then he dragged her from the car... And he assaulted her by punching her until she stopped moving. And then he used a piece of rope to wind around her neck until she had been strangled to death. And then he left her body laying at the crime scene and he posed her. He, um, she was nude and he kicked her legs open so that... Um, she was left in a degrading pose. Now it's going to take nine days before the authorities find her body. She's going to be, she's going to be found on Sunday, uh, mother's day, uh, May 13th of 1984, May 23rd, 10 days after that, Bobby Joe gets pulled into talk to his supervisor at his electrician's job at Gulf Bay electric. And his supervisor is trying to have a conversation with him about some of the things that uh, people have observed about Robert. And the supervisor basically says he's being rude to women. He is watching a lot of pornography and he's got nude photos in his wallet. And, in, and so his coworkers and apparently at least uh, uh, one customer have complained about him. Now, this is my question. What are you watching a lot of pornography on in May of 1984? Well, I I think it was an assumption. Maybe maybe he talked about it. Maybe he was using that as like topics of conversation. But yeah, there was no like smartphone that he had in his pocket that he was watching it on the job, right? And yeah, it wasn't I, happening. Yeah, I was wondering if it was maybe a slip of the interviewer like depending on where that happened in time. But even then these interviews didn't take place at a time when like 
you know, you can pull out an iPhone yet. It might not have registered to whomever was doing it. Uh, like, so this would have, I mean, I guess they could have had a break room at work that he was watching it on a TV, which would be highly inappropriate. Um, but yeah, I think it was probably more of an inference than an actual uh, observed thing, right? Yeah. Okay. The end result of all of this is she doesn't make it and he gets fired. And that's the that's like basically how his May seems like it's going to wrap up, except on May 27th, he grabs uh, a woman named Michelle Sims. Now, the way this starts out is he hires her. So he's fired on the 23rd. He just killed a woman on the 13th. He hires this woman thinking that he's just going to have sex with her. She works uh, the Kennedy Boulevard area in Tampa as a sex worker. She's a cocaine addict. So she's known to police. So like, it's not like somebody that's like completely off the radar, but it's the eighties and you and I go back and forth on like how victims like this would have been treated. I did get the impression from the paperwork I read that she was possibly an informant of some level. So maybe there were some people who cared about her, at least from the perspective of information within the police department. He does the same thing to Miss Sims that he did to Miss Long. He ties her up after forcing her to uh, undress. But this time he kind of hog ties her and then drives her. So he's driving around with this woman hog tied with her hands behind her back in the back of his car to this area that's essentially where all of the women doing work in this area would sort of go to to have privacy with regular clients. So he rapes her in the back of his car. He pulls her out and he attempts to strangle her. But she puts up a fight and she starts to almost get away from Robert Long. He grabs a knife that he had there that he had threatened her with. And instead of strangling her, he ends up cutting her throat. The type of cuts that they would describe as nearly decapitating somebody cuts her throat, like slashes her um, her neck essentially from ear to ear. She gets found pretty quickly because of the area she's in. Um, she's naked. The rope is still around her neck that's you know obviously been cut. She's laying on the ground in this area where these women feel they can safely bring their you know regulars and and uh, their their customers. I guess would be the right word. And then her bloodied clothing was found hanging from a nearby tree. This is the first time that police get a really good cache of evidence. And by cache of evidence, um, they document uh, at the scene red fibers, human hairs, a single bare footprint, uh, tire tracks, and they also document semen at the scene. This is the one that I think ends up really uh, cracking the case later on once they have a suspect. This is the one that kind of has all the evidence that people look for that put him away. And it happens, it's actually pretty early in the spree. So this is his third victim, uh, Michelle Sims is. Murder victim. This is his third murder victim. You're right. This is his third known murder victim. It gets a little weird here. And here's why it gets weird. 
while this is happening, he apparently is not like to the point that like he's just decompensating kill to kill. He's actually going on these classified ads, rapes and robberies in the Pinellas County area during this time. So May 27th, he kills Michelle Sims. And from May 27th for the next two weeks, there are multiple reported ads of women who uh, multiple reported assaults of women who had placed ads in newspapers who someone would come to either look at the item, look at the car, look at the house. And they came prepared with a rape kit. They would, he would rape these women and he would rob them, but he wasn't killing all of them until June the 8th of 1984. And again, he switches it up. He doesn't kill one of the classified ad people, one of the classified ads victims. What he does is he's driving home through Tampa. It's about five o'clock in the afternoon. And he gives a ride to a woman named Elizabeth Loudenback. Same MO as Michelle Sims. uh, uh, Well, I don't want to say the same MO. So this crime is very similar to Win Long and sort of similar to Michelle Sims. She takes the ride and after driving for a while, Long ties her up, takes her clothes off, he ties her up and he rapes her at gunpoint. He then drives to this orange grove in Brandon, Florida. And the description here is he savagely sodomizes the victim. But then he decides to untie her. He tells her to put her clothes back on and return to his car. Later on, when Long is being interviewed, he said that he was actually just going to drop her off. But she wouldn't stop crying. So he decides to strangle her with a rope. And then he throws her body in the shrubs of the, uh, near the orange grove. The implication there is that she was annoying him. Yeah, she was, she was, she was upsetting him. Yeah, annoying him is a good, good way to put it. After he kills her, he goes through all of her stuff and he finds her ATM card along with a four-digit number, which turns out to be her PIN number, in her wallet. Over the next few hours, he drives around to different bank ATMs and he uses her... Uh, ATM card to withdraw cash. A couple days later on June the 14th, Long goes on an overnight visit to see his kids that he has with his um, ex-wife. His his kids live down in Hollywood, Florida. And on June 15th, 1984, he starts a new job at Tampa General Hospital that is supposed to be as an x-ray tech there, which is... Sometimes he's working as an electrician or in that field, and sometimes he's working as an x-ray tech or in the hospital industry. He moves back to the hospital industry in June of 1984. On June 24th, about roughly three weeks, not quite three weeks, after he had raped and killed Elizabeth Loudon back, her body is found. The corpse only weighs 25 pounds, She's fully clothed in the shrubs, uh, presumably near the orange grove, although that's not specified in what I'm reading here. And she still has the same rope around her neck. Now, 
July 17th of 1984, remember that whole thing he did with Mary Hicks when he wrecked her Jaguar? Yes. Okay, he goes to court for that. The court considers that, and this is, so the way that these records work in Florida, you kind of have to like scroll backwards in time to find it. They consider this to be uh, like his first big felony. And what this one is, is it is a, hold on, I want to give you the exact charts because it's interesting how he gets away with this. In my opinion, he gets away with it. I don't, I don't know if you'll consider it that or not. So Mary Hicks is April of 1984. Okay. So what he gets here is an, a, an attempted kidnapping. And it reads, it says, kidnap slash committed or facilitating another felony. So while mainstream media just says this is an attempted abduction, the way the Florida courts treated that was like he was committing this kidnapping for the purpose of facilitating a rape. Does that make sense? Like it's a, they elevate it. It's are not. You, are you ahead. sure? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a felony. It's it's kidnapping in the in the attempted commission or facilitation of a felony. Right, but it didn't he steal the vehicle? He crashed the vehicle. Okay, I so okay. I'm not. Uh, saying you're wrong at all. I, I actually don't know, but like my impression was that they were about putting the property damage as a felony. It could, oh, you think it's the, ah, uh, you think it's the theft. You yes. Know you may be hundred percent correct on that. Um, because uh, if it really is like the That's, other way. Well, yeah. I mean, I agree with you now that you're <laughs> saying it, it makes more sense from what I'm about to say. And that this is the vehicle. If you don't remember, he ends up only having to pay $1,500 for the repairs to the Jaguar, and he gets three years probation. So yeah. I thought that was an anomaly where he was getting off for an attempted rape, but you are 100% right now that I look at it. They're considering that the theft and damage to her car. That's great. Okay. I, I just wanted to make sure because um, I can see it your way, but like then it makes me a whole lot madder that, that's all he got for that. But like, it makes more sense if it, he was just, uh, it was the kidnapping, which he should have been punished for that too. Right. But if the presumption was that it was for an assault, uh, a, a sexual assault on her, then it shouldn't have been what it was, but I do see property damage going so that he, way. Here, so, so here is why that happens sometimes with his case. Okay. He, until, uh, mid-1985, he is actually not considered a felon. And it's because one of the conditions of this three years probation and the $1,500 payment was if he behaves himself for the three years probation, he won't have an additional record. And remember, up to this point, he's mainly misdemeanors. So when he officially becomes a felon, what they do is they go backwards in time. And I just realized it when you said that. And they violate his probation, but they lump it in with a bunch of sexual battery charges on the more serious stuff he gets convicted of. So that charge falls directly under a sexual battery with weapon or force. It suddenly has that attempted abduction, which there's three of those. But this attempted abduction 
looks like it goes with that sexual battery, but if you drill down on it further, it, they just used it as one more charge. Like it, there's, there comes a point in time in here where the judge just looked at it and was like, it doesn't really matter what else I do. He's never getting out of prison because there's no way all of this is getting overturned from these separate trials. That's why I thought it might be related to a sexual battery, but you're right. It's not. It's going to be the theft and the property damage. Right. Okay. Well, that makes me feel slightly better, but uh, I do see how it could be very easily interpreted that way. Yeah. So Robert Long is, he's 30 years old when all of this stuff in 1984 is going on. Now in July, after he gets basically let go to probation, he moves into a new apartment. And on September 7th of 1984, a 21-year-old woman named Vicki Elliott is reported missing when she fails to report to her job at a coffee shop at a Ramada Inn. Police are searching her apartment, and they discover that she had purchased an airline ticket to visit her parents in another place. That point in time, like the discovery of the airline ticket, they realize that she is probably not a willing missing person. They wait a little bit here. Uh, with Vicki Elliott, and they check to make sure she doesn't use this airline ticket, and she does not. On September 27th of 1984, Robert Long gets fired from Tampa General Hospital because he fails the exam uh, that he would need to pass in order to earn his advanced x-ray certification. People at the hospital um, are interviewed as saying a couple of the different things about him that are important. One, they say that Long was constantly talking about sex. And they say he had a serious problem with the fact that his supervisor, the department supervisor, and then the hospital administrator were all female. So his chain of command is um, women, and that didn't go well for him. So on September 27th, and he's not been there for long. He starts this job. It looks like he starts at June 15th. So he's there in July and August and September. He's had this time to sort of acclimate and get this certificate, and they boot him. But he does meet a woman named Ruth. Some of the documents, they have a full name. I don't believe that's her real name. All I'm going to call her is Ruth. Um, and Ruth and Robert, they go on totally normal dates, and according to Ruth and all of her interviews with the police later, they have completely normal sex. So their sex life is just run of the mill. Well, September 30th, 1984, he picks up a sex worker named Chanel Devin Williams, who's 18 years old. Um, he grabs her. He's not like to get an appointment. He grabs her. She's walking home late in the evening and offers her a ride. Uh, he changes up his MO a little bit because she resists him and he beats her and he forces her to undress. And then he ties her hands behind her back and has her lie down face down on the reclined front seat of his car. And he's driving around and he continues to assault her and, and to beat her. He drives towards the Morris bridge road and he stops his car at a little entrance slash service road that is essentially uh, the entrance for a cattle ranch. He rapes Chanel from behind while she's still in the front seat. And then he pulls her from the car 
and he starts to strangle her. Chanel was in probably the best shape of most of his victims, and she's very athletic, and she almost gets away from him. And as she's getting away, Long pulls out a gun, and he shoots her one time in the back of the head, and then he drags her under the edge of the the cattle fence. He drives away, and as he's driving away, he throws her clothing out of the window. Eight days later, the body of Chanel is discovered. So this is October 7th of 1984. On October 7th, when her body is discovered, Long picks up a sex worker named Kimberly Hobbs, and he rapes and kills her. Uh, this was this was not a stabbing. This was not a shooting. He goes back to his old method, tried and true strangulation. And then on October the 13th of 1984, uh, which is his birthday is October 14th, 1984. He's going to turn 31. But on October 13th, 1984, he picks up a woman named Karen Beth Drenfren. And Karen is well known as uh, being someone, she's not exactly a sex worker. She's what... I think you've referenced as someone who dabbles in partying. Right. Like to exchange like for drugs, like a drug user that. um, Yeah. 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 So they're willing to trade uh, sex for drugs. basically. Yeah. Yeah. She has a record for grand larceny and for um, quite a few things that point to her being more of a drug addict than a sex worker. So he picks her up and he, you know, essentially is going to get her whatever she's looking for. I didn't see what her drug of choice was, but I think it was cocaine based on like some of the uh, trial testimony around it. So then he, you know, makes her undress. He ties her. um, He rapes her. And then he takes her down to the same or close to the same orange groves uh, that he had been to before. He uh, rapes her again. He strangles her. And then he, he rapes her the last time. He pauses in the middle of all this because he hears dogs barking nearby and he thinks that he's about to be caught. So he sneaks back to his car with the body and he waits for like the noises that he's heard and these dogs that he's heard. He waits for everything to settle down. And then he wraps the body up in a beach blanket and he puts her in the trunk of his car. He drives to another orange grove and he leaves the body underneath a tree and this time it's important because he doesn't unbind her he leaves the bindings on her wrist and around uh, leaves the rope around her neck the following day karen's body is found and this uh this is on robert's birthday october 14th of 1984 october 16th 1984 there's a reference in this timeline that i'm going to point out here i'm not totally sure what it means he spends the night with his ex-wife and his two children. He doesn't go home. He spends the night with them. That's weird, right? I mean, I don't know what the circumstances are, but, you know, sometimes kids will be like, let daddy stay over or whatever. I mean, I don't know that that's what happened, but yeah, it is a little bit strange, but they had had a working co-parent relationship, right? Yeah, to some degree. I don't uh, I don't know how co-parent it was as much as like there was a mom and there was a dad. Mom was doing the work and dad would make appearances. 
Well, yeah, to me that, but like, it's not causing trouble, right? (laughs) Nobody's causing trouble there. Um, So yeah, uh, I don't know. It is, it is strange. It is mentioned and I don't see it elaborated further um, at all. So. Yeah, it's, it's not really elaborated on. And I just was mentioning it because it's in, it's in the timeline on Halloween. The body of Kimberly Hobbs is found. Now, at this point in time, she's been dead for approximately three weeks. Uh, she was the one that he picked up uh, sh- on the same day that uh, Chanel Williams' body was discovered. And her body has been preserved in a patch of mud, which leaves some pretty valuable evidence uh, laying around. Now, there's a couple of things that happened in here that we're going to come back to because I feel like they're important. Now, one of them that was sort of left out, I guess she's a little further back. Everything's about to change for Robert Long. And I say that because so much, and you have to remember this is 1984, forensic evidence is just becoming a huge deal. I mean, it's been used for many years, but if you look back at like sort of the history of, of general uh, human identification and forensic evidence, uh, I would say the eighties into the nineties is where some of the most interesting changes occurred. Do you think that's a fair way to put that? Absolutely. Yeah. So, so if you look up like forensic identification, uh, you can go back through like the history of, of the different ways that, that people have been identified. And like, it's going to start out with, I think probably friction ridge identification is going to be the most prominent one, like specifically fingerprints. Um, And also blood typing. Yeah, there would have been blood typing. I know at one point, like, like feet prints were very usable, but I guess that falls under the same thing. Uh, as fingerprints, right? Well, and it's my opinion that they, you know, they were constantly looking for whatever they could uh, to solve these, any crime, right? And uh, all of that, uh, which I don't know that it's been deemed like junk science evidence, but to me, if you're comparing something to like, you know, DNA, uh, it, it is, it's completely subjective junk science, right? But you're right. That's what um, now a bare footprint. I find that hard to believe, but I would believe that they would, you know, attempt to use anything they had. So um, I can. Well, see. I got sucked into this rabbit hole in this case some time ago, and it, I don't know if you've ever done this. Have you ever gone down a rabbit hole and suddenly realized that you've already been down this rabbit hole? I have had that happen before. Yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, and this is related to where we're going with this case because two big things happen in the next episode that are really important to this series. But I have to give you sort of uh, the, the preface to it, I guess. I was looking for the origins of forensic science. Like, where is it first referenced? In my mind, when's the first time it was used to, like, punish a criminal? And then... Like, when did it become standardized? Like, do those two things make sense? How how far how far back do you think that that might have happened? Um, it's further back than I thought it was. 
Have you have you looked it up? I have. I can't remember right off the top of my head. I actually did a pretty um yeah, I've I've looked pretty thoroughly. Um now you're saying forensic, which is different than DNA, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just talking about using okay. So the word forensic or forensis is of or before the forum. The term goes, you know, back to Roman times. So essentially Back then, when a criminal was charged and the prosecutor was bringing a case, which they probably weren't even called a prosecutor, the, the, the group of people that were the gallery or the jury or whatever you want to call them would have been the forum. So forensics comes from the idea that, like, this is what has been presented to the forum. So the person accused of the crime, like, it, or the defendant today, and then the, the accuser, which may or may not have been like an official back then. It could have been like the person it had happened to or a witness. Like when they bring their sides of the story together, the case would be decided in favor of the individual with the best story. Well, technically probably the best argument, but the the best story and the best presentation. So the origin of the word forensics comes from like, like it's, it's a form of legal evidence or, something that is used as a, as a, a bolstering of an argument that's being publicly presented. Today we say forensics, but over the years it's really been forensic science of which DNA is a category of forensic science. It is not all of forensic science. Does that make sense? It does. Yep. Uh, It's actually, to me though, I do have trouble distinguishing other things as being like objectively credible, but that's a different subject. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that is a different topic. So for, for the purposes of like where we're going with this forensic science, we will call it using the scientific method and process to solve crimes because that's what's happening for the rest of the story. I think that's the fair, the fair way to say it. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's accurate. If if you get a chance, there's a there's a book. It's um, Washing Away of the Wrongs. So it's one of the first like like written accounts of sort of modern types of science being used to solve uh, some criminal cases, and it goes all the way back to 1248. And you know, it's it's a, it's a Chinese book. But you can find it, uh, Washing Away of Wrongs is actually available like in different translations. It's actually a pretty cool read. So this would have been written by uh, Song Si. Now, he was a, a judge, like an, like an ancient Chinese judge. I, I probably said that a little bit backwards. But Washing Away of Wrongs was written by a person who would have been considered almost like, like in today's world, uh, like an attorney general, but in China. Um, and that's a really good account of how forensic science really came into, to current use. I will say this, and this is another mainstream media narrative thing. Some of the forensic science used against Robert Long is absolute junk today. Did you catch that as you were reading? Yeah. Well, if you look at, uh, any case, that went to trial during like, you know, the eighties, even up into the nineties, it's hard to come across one that doesn't have some sort of junk. 
Yeah. The cool part about uh, Robert Long's situation, as far as like legally speaking and the forensic science used to convict him ultimately of a huge number of crimes um, is he had left so many different types of evidence that although they debunked fully two of them, they could not debunk the other three. There are main, there are five main types of evidence that end up uh, getting used against uh, Robert Long as this advances. Uh, next week we'll discuss how he was caught and like what it meant, and then we will sort of start to wrap up the Robert Long case. Did you happen to look at the schedule? Do we have one more episode or two more episodes on him? I think this is the last one, right? Um, hold on, I'll tell you. Uh, just not this one, but the next one will be the last one. No, we got two more. We got two more. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. Okay. So, uh, we'll be back with more on Robert Long next week. Thank you so much for joining us today. I would ask if you guys like the show, please share the show or you can go on to your favorite podcast app, whether it's Apple or Google or uh, one of the more interesting apps, Spotify, Overcast. Uh, we're on all those different things. If you could go on there and leave us a, a rating or a review. Uh, I'm not going to ask you to leave us a five-star review, but like whatever you think of the show, leave an honest review of the show uh, because that will help us to grow our audience in season four. We are sponsored by LabratiCreations.com. You can check them out at LabratiCreations.com and you can still use the code CRIMEXS for a fun pop pet portrait of your own pet. You can also reach us on Twitter, Instagram at TrueCrimeXS or you can give us a call if you know anything about any of the cases that we're talking about at 252-365-5593. You can also reach us at Gmail at truecrimexs at gmail.com. And you can check out our website at www.truecrimexs.com. We'll see you next time. If you're one of the people who listen to uh, end to end of every episode, I appreciate you very much. Um, there are thousands of you now, which is cool. Um, we're experimenting with the, the length of the episodes and some of the other things obviously with the format and the way that we're telling the story, um, we're, we're plotting out like how we're going to tell future stories because honestly, we did not expect to get to a season four. And since we did and we're here, um, it's now time to actually like take the structure kind of to the next level. And that's what we're doing when we're uh, starting to poke around in the ethics of things. I thought it was really cool that we were able to, uh, get some words from Keith Morrison about the ethics of true crime. And and the weird thing is, like, we're sort of stuck right there with the audience members who are obsessed with this type of stuff. Like, and we carry the show the same way. I don't know that we ever expected to actually be doing crime stuff full time, but we knew that we would always be audience members. And 
taking a look at these cases um, where we're in the 80s and sort of that golden age, uh, it's been really interesting. It spurred a lot of other ideas for cases that are lesser known. There are some aspects of like this particular case that are well known. Um, and then there's this narrative that we talk about all the time that has a lot of misinformation in it. And we decided that that's sort of the mission we wanted to, to go down was to be able to explore these other cases with the idea that we could pick apart all of the narrative. Now, we've been doing that all along. We just never made it a focus until more recently because we realized that that was one of the skills that we could put together behind the scenes was to find where mainstream media sort of takes a left turn. And obviously, we started out doing something similar to that, but it has morphed into something a little more as we go. I mean, clearly, I don't think true crime is going anywhere. So I think it will start to split out into categories of what's uh, exploitation versus what's like sort of real news versus what's sort of, you know, I use the term entertainment and there is this gruesome level of entertainment that happens with crime stories. But realistically, I don't, you know, some of the stuff is necessary and that's what makes it wild is at some point it's going to have to sort of bifurcate or fork off and split into, you know, what's necessary and useful and what is just being done purely for the exploitation. And it, it's been interesting to be a part of that, which we, we very much are. 